And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with the sagacious Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live and direct from the great state of Jefferson. Wait, what was, I haven't heard that one before. What was that? Sagacious. Did you say salacious? No, sagacious, like a sage and oh, uh, somebody who's okay. That's uh, better. smart That's and judicious. Uh, I had to pull one out of the old uh, dic uh, dictionary there for you. Um, not, but you, you are salacious. Out. <laughs> you are salacious as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're here up on the Smith River. Uh, beautiful day uh, here in winter. Uh, Curtis is making me jealous, talking about already skiing and snowboarding. Uh, we we're here <laughs> with Curtis Stone up in Canada. Uh, we got to hit a little dry spell. We had a bunch of rain, and then it it dried up on us. And unfortunately, the mountains haven't opened yet. Uh, but I'm looking forward to getting on those slopes hopefully next week. Uh, and everything's great. We uh, are fully a month in now, I believe, Bear, on a new private platform. If you haven't checked that out, please go to alphavedic.com forward slash join dash us and join us in the private as we leave Patreon and the technocratic systems for our own. Uh, you will autograph your name as a living man and woman and join us in the private. It's been phenomenal already with stimulating conversations bear is super active in there so if you want to um, uh, get in line with us on uh, ideas of sovereignty law spirituality spirit science decentralization uh, health and wellness fitness uh, we've had really good conversations around um, all of those areas and more plus just really fun things in there fun movies and films we like and books we like and uh, it's been great. So join us on alphavedic.com. Also, if you go to alphavedic.com forward slash Anarchapoco, you can get your tickets for Anarchapoco. I'll be there with uh, a number of our, our wonderful friends, Andrew Kaufman and Alex Zach and the Biggelsons are going to be there, Bear. Or at least I, I believe both of them are going to be there. If not, um, Adam will be there for sure. Uh, Topher Gardner. Um, I mean, it really is an Alphavedic lineup this year, <laughs> Music and Sky lineup at Anarchopoco. So uh, that's going to be fun to be there in person. And that's about all I got um, to, on today's guest, too. For uh, Curtis Stone has a phenomenal um, website, freedomfarmers.com, and uh, we're promoting that for him as well. So please check that out. We'll, we'll explain more of what that is today. But if you go to alphavedic.com forward slash freedomfarmers, uh, you can join that platform and get assistance in finding land for your future homestead, which we're going to be going deep today. Uh, Bear, any other topics before I introduce our guest? Um, no, we're getting ready to go down south uh, to be with the kids and grandkids. So I'll be uh, broadcasting live from Rincon Beach next week in our uh, pre-Christmas episode. Uh, so that's going to be fun, maybe even dip my toes in the water. And I will also be at Anarchapoco virtually. Uh, I will be talking on the virtual stage because I do not fly these days. I try to avoid fistfights with the TSA, which would surely happen if I do try to fly. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm bagging that, but it'll be good. I can be there anyway. I'm doing a presentation on... Um, alchemical herbal uh manufacturing and and uh you know why it's really mostly uh spiritual practice as well as a mechanical medicine making practice so that's going to be a fun one but we're going to get it down into non-occulted language and just 
uh, make it less mysterious and, um, you know, because I believe we live in the age of alchemy and these kinds of practices that were only practiced by a select uh, elite in the past is now opening up to, um, you know, larger discussion and including the back end of our new website. We've got a great little thread starting on alchemy and we've got all sorts of folks that are chiming in, sharing their experiences. And I, I love the new site because I can go in there and maintain a continuity and a discussion thread and, uh, you know, bounce back and forth and have several discussions at once, whereas the telegram was kind of Lord of the Flies there. And uh, so anyway, this is a much preferable thing. So Mike, take it away. We want to hear from Curtis here. Curtis, awesome to have you here again, buddy. It's been a long time. We got a lot to talk about. So Mike, go totally. for it. Let's do it. Yeah. And, and my remedy for TSA is uh, Viagra and sweatpants. Bring the pat down. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap thrills. Yeah. <laughs> Calling all gardeners, sur thriving the great transition with Curtis Stone. Uh, calling all gardeners, farmers, entrepreneurs, and homesteaders. You know what, Bear? Give me a second. My dog has decided to go crazy. Uh, Mine's barking in the back, too, if you can hear. I was just about to go mute. <laughs> so, Curtis, uh, it is indeed a pleasure to have you back. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I always still so, talk to you guys. Mike made quick work there of the dog. Uh, calling all gardeners, farmers, entrepreneurs, and homesteaders, AlphaCast friend Curtis Stone joins us today for a comprehensive tutorial on procuring, securing, and farming your own land. Curtis believes, as we do, that growing your own food is the ultimate expression of freedom. And to this end, created Freedom Farmers, and of course has his liberty on the land and from the field sites as well for the, his media uh, quote, the best way to become self-reliant is to learn the necessary skills and to surround yourself with others who are embarking on the same journey. At each of these sites, you'll at once realize that you are not alone in seeking the assistance and camaraderie of a like-minded community of folks following the same inner prompting to seek self-reliance in these tenuous times. Quote, we are a global community of like-minded farmers, gardeners, entrepreneurs, and homesteaders who are in this together. Make, mo make no mistake, these coming months will require greater resolve and equanimity in the face of uncertainty than ever before, but good fortune does indeed favor preparedness. And I, I do love the stress on entrepreneurship. I know Curtis has been very much involved with that since his urban farming moniker, helping people start their own businesses. And, uh, you know, even in the farming world of people working for others or on large operations, uh, the decentralized entrepreneurial spirit of market farming and CSAs and all that stuff has been a really good um uh, innovation in the last 10, 15, 20 years in farming. And thank you, Curtis, for being a pioneer and a leader in that space. Uh, Bear Lando, take it away, sir. Yeah. Hi, Curtis. Um, yeah, it's been too long uh, not talking to you, but uh, a couple of years just at least. getting ready for today. I got to review all your great work that you've done in the meantime since we last talked and uh, your new sites. And, you know, just phenomenal. Uh, so we, we've got a lot to talk about and especially, you know, living in these historical times, your message and, you know, what we're doing here ourselves is, uh, you know, more critical than ever. So you become very masterful at um, finding available land, uh, procuring it, 
and uh, also understanding maybe how to hang on to it in the face of government syndicates trying to um, usurp <laughs> your affairs and properties. And uh, also, of course, once you're on the land, uh, how do you grow things while you're there? So uh, let's maybe start off with, uh, since our audience is already very familiar with you, maybe start off with what you've been up to with your latest projects. And uh, then we'll just kind of let it flow from there. And uh, we had a great pre-episode uh, discussion here into more matters of lawfare and, and that sort of thing. So we'll, we'll kind of get into the weeds in that too. But welcome and uh, thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been, uh, I think, yeah, we maybe it's even been three years since we've uh, chatted. I don't, I don't know if I talked to you guys since I've been at my new property. I think it might have been before I moved here, actually, was it? It was, or, yeah. Yeah, I think it was yeah. in my, I, I didn't, last time we talked, I was in my other passive solar greenhouse in Kelowna. Yeah, so we were I mean, still uh, dealing with mass hordes and and all the nonsense of the craziness. Then I think that's it right. It was it was right in the, right in the shit of that stuff. Um, yeah, so I mean, we've gone through there. You know, we bought this forty acre property in uh, southern BC, fairly close to the U.S. border, and uh, it's a beautiful property. I got it for a steal of a deal because nobody knows how to read landscapes, and so I'm able to uh, you know use my skill base to. Uh, see opportunities where others don't. And that's a big part of what I'm kind of doing lately is kind of teaching people those skills and helping people get on the land. And we have a homestead accelerator program. If people go to freedomfarmers.com, they can learn all about that. Um, but yeah, I've been, I'm three years into developing this property and I'm in my office, which is connected to my passive solar greenhouse that we've done here. I built that before my house because that's how I roll. And uh, we had a little cabin up here that came with this property that we're still living in right now. But our house, which is right over here, is at lockup stage. Um, it's not. It's not finished. It, hopefully, we'll finish it next summer. And um, just been doing that. I've been doing construction basically for three years now, running heavy equipment. Uh, of course, doing all the land work. We dug two ponds this summer, which was sweet. They're already mostly filled up in our skating rinks right now, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I've just been doing that, you know, and um, I've had the sort of the fortune of being in a position where I can just kind of work on my land and not really have to work in my business very much, uh, which has been a blessing. I, you know, I brought in a new team um, a couple years ago now when we launched Freedom Farmers and I really stepped back. I mean, I still create content. People see that if you follow me on YouTube or Twitter, um, you'll see that. And, um, so nothing's changed in that regard, but I'm not really in the business anymore. Um, even a lot of, most of the courses you have aren't me that we have over 20 courses. I, I've done three of them. And so I, I, am still involved in that. I help find bona fide experts in, in specific fields and then make those connections just, you know, for my travel and my network throughout the United States has been helpful in that regard, but yeah, I don't have to do any of that. Um, but I'm doing a little bit more work these days. I'm I'm consulting over the winter. I'm uh, I'm planning a bunch of events this summer here on this homestead, which will be sweet. Um, hope to be coming down to the U.S. again in a couple different times in the in the summer season. And um, yeah, I've just been kind of busy doing this right now. As winter settles, it's nice. I've shut down the construction for the winter. I just want to take a break. 
from it. And now we're, we're in ski season, which is sweet. So we, you know, our property is fairly large. So we, we actually ski on our own property. We, uh, right out of the door of our cabin, we put the skis on and we just go and we can just, we can go up the mountain. We can go on the ridge. We can go down. I can just not plow the driveway for a couple of days and let the snow accumulate. We can shred down the driveway. It's pretty fun. So that's kind of what I've been up to lately. So are you talking about cross country skiing? It sounds like. Yeah, well, you know, actually, specifically hawk skiing. You know what hawk skis are? They're like no. a they're like a cross country ski meets a snowshoe. They're basically a shorter cross country ski that has a they're they're almost like a cross country ski meets a snowshoe meets a um, uh, what do you call it uh, a touring ski. There's a skin built in on about about eighteen inches underneath your foot, and so the ski's bent, and so and the the skin just you know, you can ski down, but then you can just walk uphill. And so oh, we do interesting. Yeah, they're great. Especially for more rugged terrain, you know, cross country skis, you really need to have a groomed trail. You can't mm -hmm. really go off the beaten path, but with Hawk skis, you right. can, you could just go up a mountain and then just ski down. So we, we, yeah, nice. that's kind of what that's we cool. do. It's a lot of fun. And we Devin, snowboard too. My uh, wife Devin. and I snowboard. Deb and I have done a lot of skate skiing, if you've ever done that. But, you yeah. know, the the problem is, is you are limited by groomed trails, but it's, it's an amazing totally workout. And, oh, you know, you get on. to the point where you can ski uphill just as uh, good as coming down. But yes. I still favor downhill. I always had the need for speed, you know, with surfing or skiing or something. But Yeah, me too. And that's where I, I yeah. snowboard for, for, for that stuff. Mm -hmm. I like the hawk skis for just touring around and going on an adventure. Um, yeah. we pull our kids on a little, in a little sled, you know, and then they, but they're, they're getting, they're going to get on the skis this year too. So I don't have to schlep them around anymore, <laughs> but yeah, I know I like, I like snowboarding. I'm trying to find this really cool Canadian YouTube influencer. God, what is his name? Uh, it's he and his dog. And he just hikes into these back mountains of Canada. And he's got this really cool snowboard that splits. Yeah. Splitboard. Splitboard, yeah. yeah, and um, those are so cool, man. And then the dude's just like in totally wild terrain, boarding down just like these amazing slopes with his dog running behind him, and then he'll skid across uh, like alpine lakes <laughs> on his board. So he's like really going across the water. So he's like snow surfing. Um, yep. But in, yeah, that's like the, the stuff I watch in my free time, fantasizing about the, right. like, the wilds of Canada. Yeah. Um, that's so, awesome. Um, so Curtis, you know, we uh, mentioned uh, entrepreneurship and, you know, that's something that we've really talked about a lot here. And it's something I think that a lot of permaculturists uh, don't really consider as uh, I know a way to finance yourself and also close the entire permaculture loop. Yes. And why wouldn't you, uh, after going to all the bother of creating a farm and all the things that we've done here, what you've done on your end, you know, have a way to monetize what you're doing. And again, it's just, it keeps the whole thing going. Sorry. I got a dog in my our episodes really going to the dogs here. Mike's having dogs. I got episodes going on too. I got my dog going crazy and my kids are going crazy in my greenhouse here. I don't know if you can hear it. Hopefully <laughs> not. Um, so we're all in the same boat. Yeah, we're yeah, all so maybe talk today. a little bit about the. Uh, having a business arm because you've been very adept at that. And, and like yourself, uh, the business can get, you know, pretty busy. So, you know, but then again, that offers employment opportunities and other things for other folks that want to live out in the boonies in a similar lifestyle. So 
you know, it's yeah. really a win-win sort of thing. So, um, yeah, finding uh, the ability to juggle all those things, you know, does require a team after a while, though. It does. And that that's kind of been, yeah, my journey. I started just bootstrapping everything, figuring things out as I went. Didn't know anything about developing websites. Didn't know much. Had a, had a kind of broad skill set, though, kind of coming from, you know, being a Canadian tree planter slash musician. You know, I spent a lot of time in Montreal gigging, composing and and producing music and was always kind of the band leader. And I, um, you know, I would I would just kind of figure things out. I've always been that kind of guy. And then when I got into farming, I kind of had to figure out things a lot more. And I kind of took I took farming as far as it could go for me in the context of urban farming. You know, urban farming is a great way to get into farming because you can just start with land you don't own. You know, my book is a is a you know is a is a template for that. Um, but it runs into limitations at a certain scale, and so I think I took that that farming enterprise as far as it could have gone. And if I would have wanted it to go any bigger, and I did plan on doing it bigger uh, before I kind of moved out here and did all this thing. But, you know, that usually involves getting land and, and, and having one location because the, the multi-locational thing runs into its limits. And so did that, kept growing it. And then, uh, just kind of fell into this thing of being a content creator. It wasn't really my, it wasn't my ambition at all when I started, but I kind of, as a musician and a performer composer, I kind of felt compelled to do it. I've, you know, I've been not shy on camera or not shy to talk to audiences and things like that because of my musical performance background. And so that kind of lent itself into it. And then, you know, kind of where I am today is this big kind of shit mix of all these things I've done in the past, but they'd led to coming here and then, you know, building out a team is that, you know, if you want to have a business that scales, you need a team. You, you, you can only do so much yourself. Uh, having said that, there are some great examples of content creators that have really taken it to the max as far as what they can do themselves. But you get to a point, I mean, I've, I'm at a point now, I'm in, I'm in my mid forties and, you know, I'm kind of going, how much do I want to keep doing myself? And how much do I want it to be about just me? And and I don't. I don't want to keep doing it all myself. And I haven't for a number of years. I've been kind of had a team since 2019, really. But, um, but you know, I, even, even on the content side, sometimes I just go, you know, sometimes I'd kind of just like to disappear. <laughs> and, and, and the work that I've been doing lately has actually been still creating content, but it has been kind of rewarding in that way because, of, you know, the big thing that we're really motivated at Freedom Farmers to do now is get people on the land, step one, and then give them and show them the skills they need to start any kind of enterprise that re that revolves around regenerative or small-scale farming. And so that's just been super rewarding for me because what I, what my kind of day job, well, it's not my day job. I do this once a week and I'll be doing this right after we get off our call here is I review properties in the United States. So I've, I've kind of created this framework on how you can assess land based on the 11 scales of permanence, which come from PA Yeoman, who is the kind of founder of a lot of the base principles that came into permaculture that Bill Mollison used. And we kind of, we look at climate, uh, geography, water, access and circulation, socioeconomics, all the way down to aesthetics and experience. There's 11 of these things. 
I've basically trained my team to go out and find real estate listings for homesteads that are, we try to do minimum 10 acres, but the odd time we'll find stuff that's smaller that might be a neat opportunity. They do a batch list and they, they go and use my my model. And we, we, we haven't automated this yet, but we've made it as simple as we can for one or two guys to do it. They go and basically find 200 listings or so that are look like somewhat reasonable candidates. And then those get filtered down to about 50. And then my second guy, who's who's more trained than the other guys, he narrows that down to about 10 to 15. Then I take it and I might even narrow it down from there. But usually don't have to narrow it down for much. But then I do a review of all these things. We get it in Google Earth. We totally do this evaluation. So now we have this great mapping software in inside of freedomfarmers.com where we list premium what we call A-rated homestead properties, in the, mostly in the United States. Some are in Canada, some are international, but mostly in the US. And we show people, you go on our list, everything that's on that map, and there's probably actively a hundred or so around there because they get sold and then we have to take them down. But um, we're showing people like these, these are premium homesteads. And now I, I'm just so excited about the program because we're moving people on the land faster than then nothing's like this has existed before because you have to eat at best, you know, you learn these skills yourself and then you got to spend the time to look for them or you find a really good realtor who understands land and farms. And those aren't really that easy to find either, especially for people in the U.S. who are looking at other states and are looking to relocate. And so now you go on our map and every single property on there has food, water, energy, shelter, and the capacity for those things at varying degrees. But you can basically guarantee that any of our listings are going to be, you're going to go in there and that homestead's just going to be a banger. Like it's going to just work. And we, we, we save people so much time. And so that's kind of what I've been doing a lot lately as a, as a content creator. It's kind of where my entrepreneurial endeavors have led me. Yeah. And I really enjoy yeah, I, doing I, it. I really like helping people. I, I'd like to say that's an amazing service. You know, we have had several off-grid experiences and developed uh, farms in the past. Uh, our last one, which was about eight years ago, before we found this one, uh, we were working the farm, but we we're also understanding with our experience what we needed uh, to move on because we we're looking for a place with more land and better attributes. Uh, and because of our experience, we knew what to look for, but it still took us uh, a good number of years searching all over the place in our spare time. Uh, trying to find this place. So what you're doing there is really invaluable, especially for folks that are hearing the call right now to get the heck out of Dodge. Exactly. And, uh, and you know, feeling the need to be more self-reliant. Uh, I don't yes. think people have the time to go through the learning curve that no. I had to go through. And uh, so, yeah, so amazing. Uh, and, the, really and that's fantastic. the thing too, Bear, is, is that like you said, the, t the time is ticking, but I believe the window of time to get on the land is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And right, like right now in Canada, we are at the precipice of real estate apocalypse. And it's because the interest rates in 2019 through 2021 were at record lows, 40 year cycle. You look at the interest rate cycle and it's like this, it's a big skateboard ramp. Now it's, now it's going back up and the valuations were the inverse of that. And so you had this kind of perfect storm in 2019 through 2021, where people were buying at the top of valuations, but at the lowest interest rates. 
Now we're getting into this moment where the streams are crossing and it's a perfect storm. The big thing for Canada is that mortgages renegotiate the interest rate terms every five years. So more, you, you guys know the scam of mortgages and how that whole racket works. It's a scam in and of itself. But then you top in this thing where now you got to renegotiate your interest rate at the wow. same valuation. It's ridiculous. So what's going to happen starting next year, and it's a mathematical certainty, unless the government comes in with big changes uh, and slashes in interest rates, or they find a way to amortize these mortgages another 10, 20 years, which they might do that too. But if they don't do this, it's a mathematical certainty that Canadian real estate is going to shit the bed. And it's going to be a complete disaster. I'm already, I, I hear on the street all the time, just people in my physical world, not even online, of going, I'm literally now paying double the mortgage payment that I was a year ago. <clears throat> going from 2000 to 4000 People can't afford this. When you look at the price of it with, with inflation, the price of everything, it's a perfect storm. And so I think we might be kind of at the precipice of the sort of Lehman Brothers moment that we saw in 2008, because- even big American firms are invested in Canadian real estate. Canadian real estate has been a safe house for a lot of investment around the world internationally. And I think when this really starts to go, and it all fits in with the whole you'll own nothing and be happy, right? So this window of time to get on the land is 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 getting it's a quickening, if you will. And so I think yes. our service actually is going to help people more than ever once that really starts to happen. I try I'm trying to tell people now. Take advantage of it now. You can sign up to our program for 49 bucks a month. And we, we used to charge 300 bucks a month for the whole for just the Homestead Accelerator service. Now we charge 49 bucks a month for everything we have, all of our courses, everything. And so the value is insane. I'm telling people, not because I'm trying to sell you something, but that the service is so valuable that if you start looking at these things now and learning and watching my review videos of property, you're gonna you're gonna get a fairly fast education that when the time comes. Because we're going to go into devaluation quickly. It's going to it's going to be deflation for a short period of time in Canada as real estate prices just plummet because nobody can afford to renew. People are foreclosing and nobody can afford to buy. Prices have to go down. So we're going to have this two, three-year period where there's cheap prices, but your biggest competition for those houses is going to be BlackRock. And they, and, they, they uh, tell us, these cronies tell us that that's what they want to do. And of course, the real agenda behind the scenes, it's a land grab uh, here in the States as uh, you know, here in the southern colonies, we'll call ourselves, uh, as well as Canada. Uh, in Northern California, if you try to buy rural property and especially out in places like where we live, uh, if you, they do not give you fire insurance anymore, they stopped insurance in, uh, insuring people. And at the same wow. time, if you try to get a loan on a piece of property, you can't get a loan without fire insurance. So uh, in between just trying to torch us out every summer and then discourage buyers that don't have the cash to just come in and buy things outright, you know, it's a real tenuous situation. And of course, uh, simultaneously now, they're signing over in the states here, all the federal lands that used to be state parks where we used to hunt and fish and go camping. Those are all becoming privatized. So it's absolutely getting rid of the folks, putting them in stacking packs. So uh, again, what you're absolutely. doing is such an amazing service. And I would just admonish anybody this, you know, you should have started doing this yesterday. So get on with yes. Curtis there and uh, yeah, don't wait. There's no more time to wait.
Yeah, my brother-in-law, it's, it's my brother-in-law, who, um, so I just, um, I've, I've said this publicly, but uh, liquidated all my crypto uh, in this last year. I just missed did that the, the newest high, but got it at pretty high, and we yeah. purchased a second property uh, out of necessity uh, for my children, uh, and they wanted to go back to school and all that. So, but that being said, we we had to go through the whole mortgage nonsense again. And my brother-in-law is a mortgage broker, so uh, he helped us out in a massive way. But he was telling me that this is the worst it's been since 2008 by far except there is no in, there's no inventory there's no sales and nobody's selling and the interest rates are spiking there's there's a debt obviously there's the whole credit crunch with the banking system so it is like it is the perfect storm so it um you hear from a lot of these economists on YouTube saying it's the worst time to buy but what I've been saying is it's the best time to buy because it may be the last time you can get in so, it is and, and yeah. the US has just different conditions like I mean we, we even I found some incredible properties in Northern California and they're all busted up old dope growing operations, right? Cause right. there's no money in that anymore. The, the government yeah. destroyed that industry. So when we've been finding properties in like areas like Humboldt County, Mendocino County that are really nice and surprisingly cheap, you know, 350 grand, 400 grand can get you a fairly decent home on 30, 40 acres in some of those Northern California mountains, you know, zone eight or, you know, zone nine, sometimes beautiful areas for relatively cheap. But then, you know, the question is, do you want to move there? Um, I mean, in the United States right now, the biggest opportunity I'm seeing is in the state of Kentucky. It's, it's, it's unreal. I mean, every week, and I'm looking at my list right here. Um, I, we're finding these kind of old Amish properties because the Amish are crushing right now. I don't know if you know this, but the Amish in the United States are crushing. They're probably the fastest growing demographic. That's at least somewhat native to the United States besides the tens of thousands of migrants that are pouring across the border. But the, 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 the Amish are doing very well and they're, they're, they're going up. So they're selling their 10 to 50 uh, acre homesteads and then buying 300 acres, which is hard to do, but these Amish are so conservative with their money that they can actually afford to do that. But I mean, I, I look at properties every week in Kentucky that are 300 grand for you know, 10, 15, 20, sometimes 30 acres, Amish homes. So you might have to do some electric, electrical upgrades and stuff, but they often leave their basements open in the floor. So you can actually do that fairly easily. And some of them have electricity, but you can get these incredible basically turnkey regenerative homesteads at very affordable rates. And I'm talking in nice areas too, nice rural, somewhat peri-urban. All your neighbors are Amish, pretty good neighbors to have in tough times. Um, seeing similar things in Arkansas, a uh, little bit in Oklahoma. Missouri is a lot of opportunity in Missouri too. But yeah, it's it's there's there's varying opportunities in the US as the economies kind of shift like you can't really find anything good in the southwest it's very very difficult Arizona New Mexico um Utah Southern California forget about it even even Idaho which is more in the, the northwest Idaho Washington state are really difficult too but the southeast of the US is it's just insane. There's and, and going as as high as Kentucky, sometimes even Pennsylvania, which is a nice climate. You know, it's it's that temperate region of the United States. 
uh, very mild, lots of water. As long as you're out of the main population areas, you can find some pretty good places to bug out. You know, the U.S. is mostly concentrated on the eastern seaboard. You look at a population map, it's pretty dense over there. But the topography in the U.S. in there is quite diverse. So you can be separated by mountains, the Mississippi River, all kinds of, you know, geographical features that will keep you away from the starving hordes as, as they pour out of the metropolitan nightmare hellhole cities, you can still tuck away. You know, you can still find places. I mean, Tennessee is getting hard to find places in because everybody wanted to move there. Florida, forget about it. Um, Texas, really hard. Uh, sometimes we find nice places in Northeastern Texas, but getting harder and harder, but it is, I, I am what I'm witnessing because we've been running this program for about eight months now. We started it. I think it was in April. Um, what I am seeing is there is becoming less available. It's actually getting harder for us to find really, really incredible value. When we started the program, we were finding insane properties all the time, in, especially even in Tennessee, which is where a lot of people want to go, especially, you know, Eastern Tennessee, but now it's getting harder. And so now it's kind of going into these spillover States, like finding good places in, 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 in uh, Arkansas, Alabama, uh, Kentucky, uh, Missouri for sure. Lots of good places. And, um, yeah, even Oklahoma, good places, but the whole West is very difficult to find places. There's less inventory, less people, and there's more competition for those places too. Yeah. So now that we find our land, um, how do we hang on to it? And I know you do a lot of work up in Canada and that we have different criminal syndicates, uh, running our governments and they're all up to the same thing. But there are differences as far as uh, like down here, we talk a lot about land patents. We've had workshops here at the farm with people like Ron Gibson teaching the land patent process, and it's totally legit. So how uh, doable is that up in Canada? And uh, do you know many people uh, also down here in the southern part of the world uh, that are doing it successfully in the States? Yeah, I do. I do in the States. I mean, your guys is when it comes to law, it's very different in the United States because in the U S as you know, you have this sort of dual system. You've got the de facto United States and DC, and then you've got the constitutional States uh, that have always existed and never stopped to exist, but most people don't know they exist. And so there's a whole batch of remedies that you could speak to more about that than I, but in Canada, all we have is a de facto corporation. That's all we have. We have Canada Inc., which is registered on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. And we have this fully bona fide commercial system. That's all we really have. So land patents. I mean, I get people emailing me and comments on YouTube videos all the time. Oh, Curtis, you got to know about land patents. It's like, dude, been down that rabbit hole 10 years ago. Does Nobody I know in Canada is doing it. And everybody who says they are, they say, oh, I got a letter to the attorney general and it's coming back. And they, they always got these stories of, oh, it, it's in the process and never seen a bona fide one. You can get your land patent. I, I have mine. I got it. But it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you. And so really what it comes down to up here is the thing that I tell people as, you know, as far as I'm willing to talk about publicly is that in the commercial system, if you just accept that it's commerce, commerce needs consent. And, and you just operate within that space and you read the statutes. And it, unfortunately it means doing a little bit more legwork because you have to understand what you're doing. 
but it works. And, and, and the reason it works up here is because there's way less people. So Canada is so much more rural than the United States. Just look at a map. It's just green, right? It's just trees, huge amounts of trees that, you know, all of our farms are concentrated in the prairies, you know, mostly in Alberta, as far as large scale ag, Manitoba and Saskatchewan too, just those climates aren't as nice. Southern Ontario has a lot of farming as well. So does the lower mainland in British Columbia, but, and, and, and parts all over, but Canada is so rural. And so what I say to people, when you, when you try to think about things in terms of finding my, my biggest thing is three things, freedom, liberty, prosperity, those three kind of exclusive in their own way and have their own meanings, but really what it comes down to putting away all the law stuff, all of that is understanding the dichotomy of freedom and living urban or rurally. And so I've, I've done this picture. I shared it on uh, Twitter not too long ago where I showed your a scale of freedom from dependency to sovereignty. You can take that idea and put it on a map of urban development to rural areas and everything in between. So you have urban, suburban, peri-urban, rural, right? So everybody know what urban is, concrete jungle, big city, high concentrations of people. It's where the highest concentration of bureaucrats exist. It's where the state, for the most part, exists. It's the Death Star, if you will. Then you get into suburban, where you have still fairly higher concentrations of people, but more space, suburban homes. We all know what that looks like. Peri-urban is farmland, is essentially the areas where there's industry, but there's a lot more space. You get larger tracts of land. And then you get rural, which is where it's trees and not a lot of farms, though you can farm rurally. I'm doing that just fine. But what you find is that the state has so much less incentive economically to, to manage the rural areas. And so, you know, you look at Agenda 21, talk about the, the wild rewilding project, all that kind of stuff. It all kind of ties into this in that if you want to be free, the best way that'll solve 90% of your problems is just get into the country. And so when it comes to how do you manage the state when they send you a letter saying X, Y, Z, all those are all complicated and nuanced questions. We could go into those a bit too. Um, but for the most part, most people's problems are solved by just getting rurally. And this is different in Canada than it is the United States in the sense that Canada has 10 times less people and probably even less now because the state of migration here is just nowhere near what it is in the United States. And so the state as we, as we know it really only manages everything up to peri-urban. They barely touch rural. In fact, there's some interesting globalist policies being implemented right now, even in my area, that are incentivizing people out of the city. As you said, they want you hack, track, stacked, and packed, right? And so what they're doing out here all ties into Agenda 21. They're doing this right now. I've met people on the ground that are engaged in this. They're pulling culverts out of forestry service roads. Why would you do that? It's sabotage. It's essentially self-sabotage to dismantle the infrastructure of your country. But there's contractors all over BC right now, all over, in all the counties and regions that are actively pulling culverts out. You'll see are these they justifying guys justifying that as like a green initiative? You know what? I haven't seen an official policy from them as to why that is, but I think that's probably what it is. Um, but they're doing it. And, and, and a guy I know met a contractor that's his job in, in the area that I'm in right now. 
he's out with a, a kind of a road worthy backhoe, you know, with a, a front loader on the front uh, backhoe on the back. And he's driving up forestry service roads and pulling out the culverts. It's, it's crazy. Why would you do that? They're also doing things like they're just decreasing services to the rural areas. And so, I mean, I've been telling people this for years that if you want to live in the rural area, it's freedom and responsibility, right? So yeah, you want freedom, you can have the freedom and they'll leave you alone for the most part, as long as you're not pissing people off or playing a political game. If you want to go silently, which is to use the law, that's my strategy because there's politics, there's there's administrative and there's law. And there are three different things. The state exists in those three states, in those uh, three different ways. So I don't play a political game. I don't play an administrative game. I play a legal game. I go right in the law, which ties into the administrative in a way. But they seem to up here um, just kind of let you go if you go silently and don't wake up too many sheep. And so this is where, you know, you guys have these conversations of in the private and all that, all that stuff's important. And it's the same up here. But um, yeah, so basically, you know, in a nutshell, if you want to live rurally and you want to be free, you have to be prepared to be off grid. And you got to have the four nexuses of human survival, food, water, energy, shelter. You got to have those things. And how much of those things you need to set up on your homestead will vary on the context of what's already there on your land. And so that's one thing that I do in my homestead reviews every week is I look at those four things and go, okay, what do we need to get those things? So this homestead, we're going to put this as a B plus homestead because you need to put this many resources into access. You know, it doesn't have a good driveway. You're probably going to need to upgrade the power system, so on and so forth. And then we grade these things based on how much resources you want to put into it. And so, yeah, if you want to be off grid and out of the way and left alone, you just got to be prepared to own it because they're even decreasing the services like managing snow on the roads here. They're getting lazier and lazier and they just have these crappy fly-by-night contractors that take these government contracts and just do a terrible job of managing it. And so it's the same thing down here. It, you know, it's snowing right now again, which I'm stoked about, big flakes, but it'll sometimes take them a week to plow the road my access road to get to my property. I sometimes just go down there with my skid steer and I do it. It only costs me a couple bucks in diesel and my neighbors are very appreciative, but that's the kind of world that we're going into if you want to be in the country. And uh, the benefit is if you live like that and tap into your own resourcefulness, then when it does hit the fan, then you know you know how to think on your feet. Another good attribute of living in rural areas, uh, yeah, we're kind of, I don't know if we call ourselves rural or wilderness, but we're out there and it takes a while just to get into the closest small town, but where the small town is, you have the county seat uh, here, Del Norte, which is the northernmost county in California. And the benefit in a small town bureaucracy is you actually find real people and any kind of legal process is all about enforcement. You can have the greatest yes. understanding the, the, the greatest paperwork and all that kind of thing. But if you don't know how to enforce it, or if you're dealing with rogue administrators, you know, it can be become a little difficult. So when we do have to conduct some occasional business at the county courthouse, we go in, we talk to real people. And even the, the folks, uh, you know, that are doing those county jobs all agree that everything's corrupt and screwed up and it's not like it used to be. And, and uh, you know, they're more likely just to stamp something, uh, you know, uh, allow you to help yourself to county records or, you know, to support you in whatever you're trying to do. 
Uh, if you just move a little bit south of where we're at, which would take you into Humboldt County that you already mentioned, now that's become uh, just uh, sort of a satellite of the Bay Area, even though it's yeah, way right. north. And you go into that bureaucracy and there's a bunch of creeps in there that give you a hard time every time you try to do anything. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, living rural, you're going to find more kindred spirits. And also, when you come up in the Northern California or to where we're at, you're actually going to find larger swaths of uh, untouched wilderness than probably anywhere else in the country. Now, I don't want to encourage people to move up here. And there's not many places, you know, that are developed to move into in the first place. On the other hand, Northern California, especially with the all the pot growers vacating just a little south here there are some good properties and everything's and also yes, that develop some infrastructures yeah. in order to water water their crops and all sorts of things that you can take advantage of so you also um, have more voluntary mindset and yeah. not only on this sort of anarchistic perspective but in truly being voluntary and like for instance i'm a voluntary volunteer uh, firefighter i volunteer as a firefighter you don't have professional firefighters here so you have people that are in the actual community that will show up on a 911 call you may even know that have your back it's way more personalized right your neighbors way it, more. It, it, work with each other you know each other um or at least you know of that person and what what they have. So if you have children, especially and you're raising a family, um, it's it's far safer in that perspective. In that, um, you know, we moved here from Los Angeles in 2016, so I could might raise my kids, allow them to ride their bikes around town, and not have to worry about them being potentially abducted by or you know God knows what like you'd have in the city because oh, everybody know. knows that's that's Winner's kids right there. What are they up to? You know so. Uh, there is a, a camaraderie amongst uh, your neighbors, typically. And if there isn't, if you do have issues, you take care of it yourself, usually. Uh, you don't bring bureaucracy into the fold. Uh, it really is more about being human and also taking care of yourself. So, yeah, I, I, I've been saying this for years now. Get out of the cities uh really the time is now more than ever uh, and oh it's it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And another and bonus about where Go ahead. Another Barry. bonus about where we live is we're all strapped. So uh, you don't want to walk into somebody's private property. Trust me. Yeah, totally. I was just going to say you were talking about the real estate apocalypse in Canada, but there's so much property there. Yeah, a lot of it's cold tundra, but right, like if it's if you have the ability to survive the winter up in the north of where you are, there's just millions of acres of opportunities. They're not. Oh, it's yeah, it's amazing. I mean, realistically, though, the real estate isn't that good. I would say, draw a band 500 miles from the U.S. border straight north, and that's pretty much where everybody lives and then going much beyond that you're getting into zone three you know there are microclimates like in, in british columbia there's so many microclimates so british columbia you can actually live quite a bit further north and and still be in as like a zone five even and, and even get into some temperate regions and stuff like that bc is really cool that way um but yeah no absolutely there's less there's less competition for the land. There's less people. And I'll tell you what, 
my biggest risk in the sense of the, 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 the thing that I'm concerned most about when in terms of assessing risk with the SHTF, as we say it, is not the state. It's not the economy. It's people. Because the starving masses are what is going to be the thing that causes the most amount of chaos. I mean, just look at, did you see that new Netflix movie that the Obamas produced that everybody's talking about? You know, yeah. these these sort of situations that they're predictive programming they about for, it. and they've been predicting program, programming this for years. They but have that's a, where they uh, wanted to go. Civil War because, film. Did you see the one? There's a civil, American Civil War film coming out. Um, that one's I coming see. out now too. Yeah, and yeah. I, did, I haven't seen that one yet, but I did watch the Leave the World Behind one. And um, so the New World Order are lazy. You know, they they want the people to enslave themselves. They want the people to kill themselves. They want to do the least amount of work and deploy the least amount of resources. So you can kind of bank on that. And so the great thing about Canada is that, I mean, for a guy like me, uh, I've had many opportunities to live in the United States. I could, I could live down there and work down there and, and do all that. No problem. Um, but the thing is that in Canada is just so much less people that, and a winter, you know, you combine that with a good winter. And I like winter cause I'm, I, I like outdoor sports. Um, it's actually pretty sweet because when, if we think about a proverbial event, you know, of the shit hitting the fan and, you know, there's only three days of, of food in the grocery stores in the, or in the world, that's pretty much the industrial average in the industrial nations. Um, that is going to be pandemonium for two weeks. It's going to be absolute pandemonium if that continues. And so you don't want to be near any metropolitan areas. You don't want to be near any major highways. You don't want to have your property visible by major roads and things like that. Um, you will be able to just duck out. Um, and there's so many less people up here. And the winter is also makes it tough because people in, in, a, in a tough scenario like that really only have one tank of gas in their car. So they can only go maybe four or five, six hours outside of a major metropolitan area until they run out of gas. And then it's the proverbial scene of the people gridlocked on the highway, not getting anywhere. In wintertime, that's a tough scenario. In Tennessee, Georgia places like that. Yeah. You, you, you can survive for quite a while, but you'll be fighting with a lot of people. Whereas up here, and this is why I've chosen to stay here is that we can kind of just hunker down and just let the dust settle. And I could, I could not go into town for years, literally. We, we've set ourselves up that way, food, water, energy, shelter, and have achieved somewhat of a level of sovereignty on all those things that I produce those things myself. I can replicate those things. And now I'm training, you know, my kids, of course, are, 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 are little gardeners learning all these things as we go. And so that's kind of what I like about these really rural areas. You know, there's part, many parts of the United States are like that too. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's my biggest risk factor when I'm thinking about what happens when this event happens, however it's going to go, whether it's a cyber attack that they blame on Russia or North Korea, who knows, it doesn't matter. It's that when people are desperate and they're mobilized and they, and, and you know, you, you, you're dealing with a guy who's got two starving children and uh, he's willing to do anything it takes to feed his kids and, and bless him, you know, I don't, but I just don't want to be on the wrong side of that guy. I don't want to see that guy. And if anybody wonders what it will be like, uh, understand that Venezuela is a beta test or was a beta test. And within 10 days, they were selling human meat on the open market because people were so hungry. 
Uh, and if you don't think that's not going to happen in, uh, I don't want to be a buzzkill here, but that's absolutely going to happen in all the major cities that are already gone. And, uh, and, and also, with all this just, being said, I'd also encourage everybody in California to move to Canada as quickly as possible. I was going to say not just the major cities, but <laughs> most of humanity now lives in the suburbs. And the suburbs are almost worse <laughs> because it's literally track housing with with shopping malls. And these some of the cities have like urban farms and, you know, they have like gr little garden patches and stuff where suburban people, uh, it's lawns, soccer moms and grocery stores and not much food production going on. People are almost, you know, they're less hip to it in a weird way because they're so busy with keeping up with the Joneses where when I lived in the city, actually, we at least had like some cool little urban uh, garden plots around us. So and, and they become more vacant in ways, too, where everyone's moved out to the suburbs. So it's way beyond just cities. We're talking about a massive apocalypse here uh, of. Oh, it's just it's crazy. Size. The pe pe people are absolutely useless the average person is absolutely useless whether they're in the suburbs or the or the city what i would say to the suburbs though it's always the devil's in the details it depends on which suburb and where you know um but i would say that i think i'd push back on you a little bit in the sense that i think the suburbs overall have a better chance of getting through especially if you can get together with your neighbors and kind of wall yourself in at least there's land, you know, David Holmgren, the co-author of permaculture wrote a great book called retro suburbia. He actually used a lot of my, uh, work in that reference it in that book. Um, but there are, you know, when you have, when you look at a standardized home and this was a big thesis of my original work with urban farming is I wasn't really urban farming, you know, people kind of pushed on me a little bit for saying using that word yeah maybe in retrospect i could have called it myself the suburban farmer it just didn't sound as cool so i called myself the <laughs> urban farmer but but my farming really was suburban farming really because urban real urban farming is really difficult to do it's quite resource intensive because you have to bring everything in the soil's not good and you know your resources are so centralized but in a suburban scenario the average home in North America has got about 2,000 square feet of lawn, has at least a single or two-car two garage, you know, has got a back porch area that could be used as a nursery. There's already a lot of infrastructure there, turnkey, that could be repurposed in a more holistic context. Whereas if you're living in an apartment and your only green space is that shared 1,000 square foot plot, maybe there's like two garden boxes there as a virtue signal, but there, there, none of that's really going to do much. And, 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 you know, this is why I kind of came out three years ago and just told people I no longer suggest urban farming. Like I, you know, I stand by my work. I stand by my, everything I've done. I think it's, it's all valuable, but I would just say, take my work and apply it to a more rural context because the book, my, my book still work in all of that, the same methods, biointensive methods, all are relevant. But I just don't believe in this day and age you can do it in the city the same way. Not to say that there aren't successful urban farms. There are. There's no, no question about it. But the mentality of the average individual, especially post-COVID, is just not there. That when we, when we go into a, a, a period of energy decline and scarce resources, the fear and the paranoia of these 
you know, hate to use the term libtards, but it, it's kind of appropriate is just not there. There's just, there's no, there's nothing in the structure of society that's set up a resilience, at least in the suburbs, you know, people have garages that are working on their vehicles and stuff like that. There's, there's a little bit more stuff, but again, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the suburbs surrounding Los Angeles, forget about it, you know, but if you're thinking about maybe the suburbs surrounding a town like Nashville, you might find a, a a slightly different attitude and you might find allies a bit more, but you know, it's always, it's always in the details of where exactly. Yeah. At least well, they there have were resources. Some... I agree. I was just going to say it's this, the mindset, right? It's this mindset that we're ta have to tackle. And it's just, it's just a more of a mind opener as I travel, I've been traveling more just to see the vast, suburban wastelands that have tracked across this country and i'm sure in canada and it's like it's way my only point was it's way more than the cities it's like 75 percent of humanity right it it's is like, and wow. especially it especially the big cities um even even here in canada there's parts of suburbs that i would say yeah i would agree with you i mean thinking about the suburbs that surround calgary in alberta it's just cookie cutter. And, and it's exactly what you talked about, keeping up with the Joneses. The climate in Calgary also sucks. It's terrible for growing in general. And so there are there are those exceptions. But then you can look at some other suburban places and go, oh, yeah, you know, this this type of place might be a bit better suited to a retrofit in, yeah. in, in sort of David Holmgren's thesis in that book. Uh, it's a great book if people haven't read that, re Retro Suburbia. It's amazing. It's really real solutions on how you could repurpose it. And they're all good ideas, um, but they're all, those ideas only have value in a proactive approach, not in a reactive approach, right? So it the, if, yeah, yeah. if you want to retro your suburban town, you should have done it yesterday um, because when the, 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 the shit hits the fan, if you're trying to gather all your, you know, suburban friends to start suburban farms and, cooperatively managing resources and, and things like that. Um, people are, their first priority is, well, you have more stuff than I do and my kids are starving. So you're target. And so I would say, you know, all those ideas are great in placed in the proper time. And, and I, I think we're getting further and further away from that as this economic mathematical certainty seems to unfold. And you, you also made an important point in that, people are the biggest problem and in those more congested areas of you know normies whatever we want to call them the biggest reactive dangerous reactive phase they'll go through is just emotionally because they will be waiting for somebody to save them they'll be in disbelief that this could actually happen to them exactly. they'll feel entitled to help yourself themselves to your stuff so you yes. really need uh resilient folks around you and what do you think um is the success rate of people and it's kind of a nebulous question but you know it, say if somebody's realizing hey i've got too much to do in a short time span so let's get together with other like-minded people uh have you seen many community sort of uh groups make a go of it uh one group i really love yeah, is yeah uh, i have the, I... The, um go ahead yeah yeah i mean i we saw i saw a lot during COVID. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot mm -hmm. um, of, of people kind of either doing cooperative land buys or just orientating themselves into areas where there was other like-minded people um, definitely saw that. I mean, 
the pressure test or the stress test we have yet to see, right? Um, and so we'll, you know, that has yet to be fully realized, I think. But no, I, I think, yeah, pe people are doing that not fast enough, in my opinion, not radically enough. I think even within our sort of umbrella of a general community of, say, people in the freedom space that are interested in permaculture and, and self-reliance and things like that, call it the kind of self-reliance umbrella, there's still a lot of just disbelief in, in it. And I, I think what you said really hit the nail on the head and that there's going to, when, when this starts to unfold, uh, all the woke stuff, all that stuff's going to disappear when it comes to starvation. Uh, the, the, the incentives are going to completely change. But I think what you said is totally prophetic in the sense that let's say, let's say the average person can somehow squeak out seven days of survival without any skills. Like, so you're some urban liberal, you maybe got a number of days of groceries in your, in your, um, apartment maybe the water service doesn't get turned off right away somehow you're able to kind of scratch through it won't be till day seven that most people realize holy shit i better do something about this now and it'll be too late because then everybody will be desperate at the same time and so what i what i've been trying i've been kind of working on this thesis of a matrix of a state of liberty and, 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 and it's, it's, it's a, it's a sliding scale. And so a lot of people in the off grid and prepper space have this sort of all or nothing mentality of you're either off grid or you're not, it's either zero to one. But what I've kind of been working on, this is going to be a subject of a book that I'm kind of starting to put together is that there's this whole mindset of dependency to sovereignty. And it's, and it's, it's a multifaceted scale in between. And so you can take all the metrics that you need to live, uh, starting at the basics, food, water, energy, shelter. Then you can start to add other things in there. And, and, and the eight forms of capital, uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the idea of the eight forms of capital, you know, social capital, financial capital, resource capital, biological capital, uh, so on and so forth, go down the line, cultural capital, all these things. You can kind of add those into this matrix. And so you can imagine a spreadsheet where you've got all these things starting at the, the highest priority of what you need to live, food, water, energy, shelter, education, blah, 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 going down. Then you add on the other columns, a state of dependency to a state of sovereignty. And how it looks is that there's five stages. The state of dependency is for food, water, energy, shelter. You're living in an apartment. You turn on the water, it works. You turn on the lights, they work. Uh, you go to the grocery store every second day. The stuff's there, no problem. You're completely dependent. And, and, and if any cha anything changes in there, you're pretty much hooped. Then you can move to a state of less dependency. So now you start thinking about, okay, what can I do to build a surplus or a buffer? Okay, then you start thinking, okay, water. Let's have at least a couple hundred gallons of water stored in the house in case the water turns off. Let's have, let's start with seven days of food. Let's get that sorted. Then let's move to 30 days of food, so on and so forth. Go all the way down the line with, with, with energy. You got a backup generator, a small gas power generator with some, you know, stored premium boat gas, you know, something like that. So then you go to less dependency. Then you go to a state of security where now you're going, okay, for water, uh, maybe a little bit of rainwater catchment on the house, got a, you know, a thousand liter IBC tote that can capture some of that. Got some more stored water in the house for food. got 30 days, maybe, maybe getting up to three months. Go, go down the line. 
Then you get to a state of resilience where now you're talking, okay, got another source of water or I can store more of it. Maybe we dug a little pit well in the backyard, a little, little anarchist job, you know, didn't ask permission, but just did it, you know, then you're growing some food, you're doing some stuff like that. Then you go to a state of sovereignty where you have multiple sources, the system self-replicates and you have a diversity of options no matter what. So you've got all those things, but it's kind of getting people's head from a first principle standpoint, thinking about how do you go from that state of dependency to a state of sovereignty? And then what's everything in between? And so I've been kind of building out this matrix of all of these things to get us there. And, and I, I want people to look at that and use it as sort of a, a, a point of hope in that it isn't just this all or none thing. You can watch all these prepper videos on YouTube. You can go down this rabbit hole, get really paranoid and pissed off and then feel helpless because you feel like you have so far to go. But if you can go, okay, step one is get to a state of less dependency. Step one. Step two, get to a state of security. Step three, get to um, a state of resilience. And then step four, get into a state of sovereignty. And so, you know, where I'm at on my homestead right now, I'm still not exactly where I want to be. I got a long ways to go. It's always an endless process, as you know, Bear. But, but it's, you know, for water, for example, we're now at a state of sovereignty here in that we have multiple sources. I can, I can collect 10,000 liters of rain a day if, it, if it's raining off all the roofs of my buildings. I have all that funneled into a central source. I can pump that in any direction. I can put it in my ponds. I can put it in my cisterns uh, 100 feet above those. I can pump it into the house. I've got a pit well that captures snow melt that I can pump water out and it also captures rain. I've got a drilled well that's 300 feet down. I can pump water from that year round. Doesn't matter if it's, you know, winter, summer, doesn't matter. It's a, it's a non-seasonal well. It's in a deep aquifer. I can get water out of that all the time. So now I have kind of three sources of water. And so I've got this flexibility that even if there's an EMP and the lights go out, I can still get water no matter what, any time of the year. Same with food, same with power, all of these things. And so it's it's kind of defining this matrix and then looking at your own holistic context, evaluating your resources, addressing weak links first to get those sorted because those are the things that are going to expose you to risk, then moving upwards and adding all these things as you go. And then you can start to say, hey, you know what? We're making progress and we're moving forward. And yeah, the shit's hitting the fan, but don't be fearful. Don't react. Just be proactive. I'm also hoping that when it does hit the fan, it's going to bring out the best in some people so that we will join forces, put our heads together and, um, you know, have more of a chance of thriving together. And I would also add that w w what you just recounted was brilliant, you know, going through those stages because it's so real. And I can say from personal experience, uh, you know, it took us many years to go through all those you know, uh, levels as far as decreasing our dependency on anything. But running parallel with that journey is an emotional accommodation. And that's the thing I think that makes it tougher for most people, period, is just getting to that mindset of sovereignty or even believing that it's doable or that you have the right to do it in the first place. Yeah. Totally. And, and uh, yeah, it's kind of like, as you said, is, is so much of this is a cultural, uh, social, and even spiritual battle. 
and 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 a lot of that starts in the in the zone zero kind of thinking of the kind of broader permaculture context this idea that bill mollison put forward of zone ones through three on your homestead you know but but you can even expand that out in either direction start at zone zero which is the body the mind the spirit in the home and if, if for a family and all that that's my zone zero and then my zone one the immediate homestead my zone two, and that's where I spend 90% of my time, my zone two gardens, greenhouses that I don't need to go to every day, my zone three orchards, pastures, whatnot. And then zone four, a guy like Ben Falk, who's done some pretty amazing work uh, in permaculture design, talks about the zone four, which is the extended area. So even guys like you in Northern California, thinking about, you might only have 10 acres, but you're in a pretty rural area and you're backed up to state land that's just vast forest. In a way, that's your land in the sense that you can enjoy it and use it every now and then. You might be able to hunt on it. You might be able to fish on it and trap and and, and harvest mushrooms and things like that. And so all this stuff kind of comes into starting with you. And in order to do all those things, first, you got to sort out your stuff. And so get your health in order, get your mind in order, get your spirit in order and your body. Because as you said, we're going into this situation where we need to have the mental and spiritual fortitude and social too. These are all super, super important. The community aspect is massive, but we need to have that fortitude where, you know, in your words to thrive is you need to go beyond surviving. This is, you have to thrive because if you're not thriving now, the likelihood of you maintaining that level of sort of peak mindset, all of us are going to go through peaks and valleys and how we exist in this world based on the circumstances around us. But we have to be at a high level of thriving so that when the brunt stuff starts coming at us, we've got that fortitude to take those hits. You know, it's like, I uh, imagine I used to play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, you know, and you got your hit points and, and, you know, the higher hit points you have, the more hits you can take. And you got to think about it that way in a sense that we need to get those systems in place on the homestead, the systems in place with our family and our mind and our spirit to be able to withstand what's coming because it's not going to be easy for any of us. And I think anybody who thinks they're going to be completely impervious to all these things is lying or just they're delusional. We're all going to feel it. I'm going to feel it. No question about it. But it's how do you get through it and how do you make sure that when it happens, you're in peak shape and your, your, your mind and spirit are intact to be prepared for, like, just look at all the people dying of the injection still. And we haven't even hit the peak of where that's going. I mean, I lost uh, my dad. I lost his wife shortly after from the shot. And it's like the, the mental fortitude that we're going to need to handle all these things is, is, is just going to get more and more extreme. And so the time to be going beyond surviving into thriving is now. Yeah. And, uh, the, Go ahead, Mike. You're going to say something. I was just going to say, there goes this video on YouTube. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was I was uh, smiling the same time you were. I'm like, okay, here's another censored. Uh... <laughs> They've been deleting one. No, that's okay. We're always playing episode. the game. Oh, right. Of, uh... Yeah, talking about the shots. Yeah. You know what? I've said things like that on my live streams, and it lately it hasn't yeah. been an issue. Uh, They've been yeah. ruthless taking our videos down lately. I'll, really? I'll I'll say this, like we've been in collapse. I, I would say symbolically since 9-11, right? The collapse of the towers, we've been in collapse. Collapse yep. takes 
two to three generations of an empire to fully collapse. It took 500 so, years for the Roman Empire, right? Exactly. So it's not like, yeah, I think stuff will be hitting the fan. All It already is everywhere we look. So whether there will be moments of, of complete and utter chaos for sure, and then it will sort of eddy out and we'll be calm again. And then it will hit. It's not. That's the thing I think we need to remember is like, we, the time is now I've been saying that for years. The time is now, but also you have time to learn. You have time to evolve. You have time to work together and figure this stuff out. If you start acting now. And what I love is like, yeah, the Bill Mollison, like permaculture world is very academic, right? It's like, you got to go to school for this and learn all the, read the design manual. And it's like very dry and hard to do, but we are at a time now where all that stuff doesn't need to be occulted. It doesn't have to go through that rigorole of academia because we have the Alphabetic platform. We've got your platform. We've got community, right? We've got people to help each other now in terms of figuring out what your assets are and what your skill sets are and what mine are and how we can combine those two as a community to evolve and uh, get more resilient. So uh, I that's one thing that was a turnoff for me with permaculture was that sort of academic approach. And it was really kind of boring. That and was kind just, of co-opted though. That that, that wasn't yeah. really Mollison's intent. If you read a lot of the early Mollison stuff or listen to his interviews, he is pretty much a bona fide anarchist. I don't think he would call himself that because that wasn't really a term that was loosely or safely used back then. But when you look at the way he talked about things, and I, I think he was a total anarchist. I think just like anything, things have a tendency to get co-opted by the acolytes. And, oh, sure. you know, I think that's what happened. The, the, <laughs> yeah, like the whole, the whole thing with the PDC and having to do all that, in my opinion, is kind of silly. I've never really liked it. I never did a PDC. I just read the material and practiced. What, what do I need to go do a PDC for? Um, but it, it was a way to get people in. And I, I don't have any ill will towards that. I've gotten to know a lot of the, the great thinkers in permaculture over the years, like Jeff Lawton and, 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 and had conversations with David Holmgren and, you know, Joel Salatin, of course. And a lot of these guys are just, they just kind of tried to put these ideas out in open source. And when you do that, there's always a risk that there's this class of acolytes that come up yep. and, and change it. And so I think that's what happened with permaculture, but you know, people don't have to get hung up on, on that, the ideology of that. They can just look at the practical things and apply them in their own context. Yeah. I, yeah. I would, uh, with, with like what Mike said, uh, seek out private, uh, training and, you know, like, what you're doing, like what we're doing at Alpha Vedic. I did the permaculture certification at Oregon State University. And um, it's it kind of a waste of my time. You know, I already yeah. had a lot of farming and life experience to begin with. And uh, everybody's assigned a supervisor, of course, through the cert certification. They oversee all your work and everything. And I had this woke girl in her 20s, uh, you know, up in Oregon there that was overseeing mine. And she's constantly trying to instruct me what to do. And I'm like, I'm on the land here. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. know what to do. What you're telling me to do isn't going to work. Yeah, And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, what Mike said. It's just overly academic. There's some good people involved. And then, of course, uh, those uh, places like Oregon State are all in bed with, uh, with the Monsantos and everybody else and, and you know, teaching you how to use pesticides safely and GMO yeah, safely. Yeah, and it's so yeah, it's, woke it's, too. It's, that is. Yeah, it, it's definitely been usurped. 
Uh, but that being said, you know, we talked a little bit beforehand about legal processes. And I know we've already mentioned on air here about land patents and, and possibly commercial uh, sort of contractual remedies, you know, up in Canada that might work. We also were talking a little bit about changing personal status uh, and so forth, just to augment, you know, everything that you might do on your land, land afterward. Now, I have uh, personal beliefs that that window is closed too. Uh, when it does hit the fan and when, not if, then those folks that are doing the wet work, you know, the administrators at the county level and all the code enforcers and the people that have made people's lives misery, they're going to be home tending to their own affairs just with their own survival. So That's a uh, we get a lot of questions about, okay, this lawfare stuff, should I change my status? Should I do this or that? And I'm like, well, that was a great thing I went through. I learned a lot. I uh, was able to understand, wow, this really is a criminal, criminal syndicate that we're dealing with. That's all good knowledge to have. But at this point, do you think there's still time or, or that it's actually useful in any way to go through those legal processes rather than just getting your affairs together on the land? It's a good question. I think it just depends where we're talking about because it's different. And, and and I don't I don't fully understand the American experience because I'm not there. And I, I you know, I, I am familiar with what you're talking about. I know people that have done status correction in the United States. It doesn't work the same in Canada. It's kind of some people say it does. But when you ask them if they've done it, they're kind of like, oh, I've got a letter here and there and I'm waiting. And it's like nobody's really done it. Um, So I think there is in the sense that like what, what you actually kind of talked about there is actually really bang on in the sense that when it comes time to the point where the administrators are too busy looking after their own affairs none of it will matter anyways really these processes are only necessary in when times are good and i'd say times are still good in that sense and so i would say yeah i mean here in canada absolutely understanding how to navigate the law and find remedy you know the thing the thing that that's great about up here is that we have this system where remedy seems to be easier to find in the statutes than it is in the United States. That's at least just my observation. And it could be biased because my knowledge up here is a thousand times what it is down there. And I've read hundreds, if not thousands of statutes myself and always have been able to find a remedy in the code. My theory on that is that just comes down to equity is that we have in British Columbia here called the Law and Equity Act. And there's a similar act in all uh, provinces of Canada. And it basically stipulates that equity is the foundation of the legal system in Canada and all, all codes are written through a, the lens of equity. And 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 it, you know, if you go into the maxims of equity and you find that every code has to have a remedy that's just baked into the system, they put backdoors and everything. And I think that's probably why I'm kind of theorizing here, just based on my observations over the years, is why Canada has been a bit of a gravy train for billionaires for a long time. Like we have our own Epstein Island here. It was called uh, the Picton Farm and the big child sex trafficking place. You can just go murder hookers and do, you know, terrible things like that is that I think the billionaire class have known that Canada if you understand what Canada is and how that works, that you can get fairly e easy remedy uh, just because there's just less infrastructure here. There's less people. There's less people asking questions. 
Um, and these cronies all seem to get away with it. So I think there's just, I would say, yeah, in, in short to your question, I think, yes, at this point, still, yes. Um, and as it pertains to how to protect your land and all that, those patents don't work here, at least from what I've seen. And I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people that know more than I do, Cal Washington, Dean Clifford, guys like this, um, that what it just comes down to is just navigating the commercial space and then in order and, and the basic understanding that if everything's commerce and everything's money, in order to do business, one must have consent and full disclosure. And so from a from a base principle standpoint, that's just been my approach to dealing with these things is that, hey, anytime the government comes at you with something, it's an offer to contract, it's an offer to, to do commerce. And so if you understand some basic you know, articles in international law, article eight on the international covenant on civil and political rights stipulates that no person is obligated to perform the compensation. If you understand that from a foundational standpoint and you understand who and what you are, you're just this commercial person vessel, but you still need to have consent in order to, to do commerce that you can use that foundationally. And then the whole person name game doesn't really matter anymore because they can't just railroad you. They, they don't. And, and don't get me wrong. I can't, I can't, I don't have this crystal ball and, and, and say, oh, I have access to every legal scenario that's ever happened in Canada. Cause somebody comes along and says, well, I know this and this and this. And it's like, well, I don't know the details of that case. I can't comment on that. But just from my own observation and having spent many years mentoring with people like Cal um, and, and, and getting a really boiled down um, education on what's worked and what doesn't. And then having I've literally had nothing but success in, in my experience with the law. Nothing but success. I've never had a thing not work. Um, it's just because what, you know, from going back to first principles, it seems to me that number one, you can't get in trouble for sending a letter. You'd probably agree with that. You know, you send a letter in response. You can't get in trouble for sending a letter. You can make all kinds of claims and demands and you can screw it up if you want. And then number two, you can always correct the record. So in commercial law, you can always correct the record. And so you if you screwed up on the first letter and you got a response that didn't look good, write another one and try again. Every time the letter comes, they reset the clock. So if, if, if the letter comes with a tacit agreement saying 21 days to respond, otherwise X, Y, Z, you send a letter and now you reset the clock. And if you accepted the conditions um, uh, conditionally, if you accepted things conditionally, you reset the clock, they come back, you can kick down the can down the road forever. I, I, I have a buddy who's been locked, tied up in this brutal civil forfeiture case for over five years now. And he still has, and, it, and, and there's some unjust stuff happening here. No question about it. But he literally keeps resetting the clock every time he sets a letter. So if, if you're scared that they're going to bring the hammer down on you, always respond and just keep resetting the clock. I mean, just look at some of these show trials that are going on, like this BS case with Alex Jones in these show trials in Connecticut and stuff like that. You can just kick the can down the road. Just keep responding, keep in the conversation. Don't let it stress you. And I think this comes back down to this whole idea of being sound in your body and mind and your spirit that you don't let these things rattle you. Every time I get a letter from the state, I get stoked. I'm like, here's another opportunity to learn. And, and the, the, my, my learning has really come through getting letters and then having the state disclose things to me that I didn't actually see in the statute. And so I've got, I've got letters 
where they disclose they recognize a difference between a private and publicly managed corporation because they recognize an SPV, a special purpose vehicle. You don't see, you don't, I don't see that stuff in the statutes. Granted, I haven't gone through the 300 pages of, of every single code and ordinance. It's, it's, it's impossible to do. But if you understand the foundation and the principles, you know what to look for and where it's most likely going to be. And then you, you can just adjust your strategy based on the expectation that they have to operate in equity, at least if they're going to operate within the letter of the law. And they have to give you consent and they have to disclose things to you. And so there's no downside to asking questions because I think fundamentally when it comes to the law, there's no real easy way to do it. I know guys like you are, are, are making strides in providing an avenue in the private for people to learn these things. And that's valuable and that's good. But if you really want to understand this stuff, you just have to get your feet wet. You have to just go right into the territorial internal waters, as they say, and just get in there and do it and, and, and learn how to defend yourself pro se and do this stuff. And that's the best way to learn because you can't just learn a bunch of stuff and then not write a letter. You have to engage in the state. And, and my, my, I have a pretty deep spiritual feeling that is telling me and tell me what you think on this, that they're going to leave us alone when this all comes down. If we have our things in order and we're operating equitably and in honor, they're going to leave us alone. It's when you do things like guys like Tommy Robinson do, and you just poke the bear and you try to make this big political statement that they'll railroad you because they don't want you waking up the sheep. But I, I, I feel that God is telling me that all of us can walk away from the new world order. We just have to walk away silently. And that's where learning these things and, and, and knowing what your tools are in the toolkit and using them as best as you can and learning as you go. The, the two fundamentals that we always taught in our lawfare workshops was number one, open every piece of mail and answer it prop, uh, promptly. And, um, <clears throat> and, and yeah, it's, it's a negotiation uh period and yep. you know it's just, it's just offers and it's very easy to deal with things so uh i agree that there are a class of citizens that are not citizens but people that are very well known to the powers that be and i travel in some of those circles i've been brought in to agencies and you know had all sorts of uh intimidating experiences uh we'll say but then when they understand that you know how to handle yourself, they do tend to leave you alone. And uh, that's, that's kind of where we're at now. I think in the States we have possibly an added dimension in our favor and that we do have a constitutional Republic that is still alive and well, albeit unpopulated at this point, but we have the prerogative to volunteer back into that jurisdiction whenever we want. In fact, every single year, we are automatically reverting, whether we know it or not, back into the Republic. And that's why they volunteer on our behalf to bring us back into 14th Amendment citizenship uh, if we don't set the record straight ourselves. But when you do set the record, then you're good for all time. You don't have to do that every single year. So yeah, answer your mail for sure. 
and um, realize there's uh, I've I've never had anybody reach out you know my mailbox or over the phone and strangle me you know there's there's really nothing to be afraid of, and you do learn just by doing it. Period. So you're absolutely right. I that's think that's the biggest learning is is to doing it. And I and, and I I'm really strict with this stuff too. Like I will not talk to a bureaucrat on the phone. So it's it's all got to be in letters. And oh, uh, yeah. sometimes it's all email. Email I've, seems to work in, it's just as good as mail now, unless, unless you have a reason to do something in registered mail and you you want to get to show that that they got the letter or whatever it was. If you're noticing somebody, but yeah, I just I just do everything in writing and I just take the time and I just I don't stress about it and yeah, they don't really come at me for anything anymore. I mean, at the same time, I'm not out blabbing. How to, oh. I know how to not pay your taxes. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't go out and just do that. I think it just, it, it's like that proverbial scene in the matrix number two, where he has a standoff with the big robot. And it's like, look, the robot says to Neo, he's like, look, you guys can pull people out of the matrix. You pull them out one at a time. It's fine. You go and you start waving the flag around and, and trying to wake up all these sheep. We're going to destroy <laughs> you. And I, and I think there was something really proverbial about that scene. And I think, and I think there's was, some sort of unspoken rule, you know? That was the second uh, fundamental that I didn't quite get around to mentioning, which is you don't mess around with the slaves on somebody else's plantation. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly well, even the, You can have your own plantation, right? Not a plantation, yeah. but... Sorry, Mike. Well, I think right. there's a universal precept around free will too. That's even even higher than that. Where it's it who are who am I? What business is it of mine to affect someone else's um, overall learning on this in the great you know uh, school we are in here? And uh, so there's a there's a notion of that. And I think if you are really aware of these universal laws uh, that are deeply moral and to do with rightness and reason and consciousness in your conscience uh and you as you were saying alluding to um curtis in terms of they're not going to mess with us i think that's in the end what it comes down to is if you are a, a moral person living with your rightness and reason and doing the effort that it also it requires effort it requires effort to learn and to do what's right then you are going to be able to even if you mess up on the paperwork uh as long as you're doing it morally and correctly you can fix it uh, and that's just a precept in law. It's understood, um, right? Yep. And they have to go about that as well. Uh, they'll do everything in their power to trick you into contracting with them. But if you don't contract with them and you don't go with their offers, uh, you're not going to go down the the path that we've seen some of the freedom health people do and were supposedly been assassinated or faked their assassination um, because yep. they were specifically poking at the beast for their own benefit, for their own yes. profit, yep. right? Exactly. You know, one of the guys I learned a lot from, I won't, I won't say his name cause he's, he, he, he likes to stay private, but um, he had this analogy to me of imagine the Titanic sinking. Okay. And there's, there's a series of lifeboats on the Titanic and it's going down and it's going down relatively slow, but you can see it going down. It's a big ship. And I, this is analogy for where we are in sort of the Western empire is that it's all going down. Uh, but he says, if we all rush the lifeboats, there's going to be too much chaos will ensue. And then a lot of people will just die anyways. And so you have to just get people onto the lifeboats in single file one at a time. 
And I think it's a great analogy for understanding the law and, and communicating that with people is that when people learn things like, you know, the big red pill for most people who get into law is the straw man, you know, and then they go, whoa, you know, it's crazy. And you, 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 it's like anybody who becomes, say, like a born again Christian, they're often the most sort of outspoken and sort of, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Just, just, yeah. Just, what's the word? Evangelical. Or, uh, exactly. Right. That, thank you. Yes. Evangelical. Um, and, and just want to evangelize everybody and so on and so forth. But then it's the people who have been doing it for a long time, kind of have a bit more patience and, um, yeah, just are willing to go in the long haul. And that's what it is. Cause you learn these things and you go, oh, we need to do this tomorrow, you know, and, and everybody who got woke or awakened over COVID, a lot of people are in that state still because, you know, guys like bear, you know, you've been at this stuff for long, way longer than I have probably 20 years longer than I have, but I've been at it for at least 10 now is that you kind of get to this point where you just, you see the new world order, you see what they want to do. And it is a long haul. And when you, when you, when you actually listen to what they promote, the books they write, they only want willing participants. I, I, I have yet, I, I've put the, this, they, they want the acolytes. They, they want the sort of true believers in their cult. And, 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 and I put this challenge out. I'll, I'll say it here too, to people, show me a document from the new world order, whether it comes out of the council on foreign relations, any of these documents that these guys publish, even, even novels that some of the psychologists have written and so on and so forth. Show me a document or a book where they really talk about rounding people up in the country. I just don't see it. it, it, it even, even think about the analogy of um, Brave New World. You know, there's that dichotomy of dystopia of 1984 versus Brave New World. Where are we? I think we're more on the Brave New World side. You know, we could have an hours-long discussion on that and to unpack that. But if you look at the behaviors of what the New World Order does, how it incentivizes certain things or not, it's all going in that direction. They want willing participants. They don't want us. And when you think about, you put that into the context of, say, the rewilding project that came out of Agenda 21 in this idea of let's withdraw all the economic infrastructure from the country and then consolidate people into cities. They don't talk exactly how they're going to do it. But when you look at policies like what we talked about earlier with pulling out the culverts on the road, creating incentives for people to get in these stacked and packed um, high density units in the city, plus all the infrastructure that they're putting there, whether it's 5G, uh, constant boosters and all this, all this stuff, this massive control grid, they're not doing that stuff out here. They're doing it there. But what they're going to do is continue to make it harder to exist out here, which in a way is kind of a blessing for people like us, because then it means that if you're hardcore enough to exist out here, then you're going to be in an elite class of people that have the skills and capacity and mental fortitude and spiritual fortitude to do it because it isn't easy, but it is a labor of love. And that, that's what I always go back to is try to think about the abundance and the beauty of nature and that the new world order is a creation of man and it's a bastardized beast system of man. But then when you get into nature, you surround yourself with God's creation, that abundance comes through you and you, you, alternative health and medicine 
and, and agriculture and all these things are all part of that. And so if you can kind of, instead, instead of being reactive to say F the new world order, I'm going off grid to be a prepper to, to, to fight them and, and, and all this, it's like, no, no, I'm going off grid. I'm going into nature to surround myself with God's creation and that abundance. And then let that heal us, let that, you know, be the structure of our community and, and where we go. And I think, I think it's all going to be good. I think I think there's a lot of good things coming. And yes, society is in this sort of decline. Mike, you were talking about this earlier, how it's like we're in this steady decline, but there's little blips in there, right? And so there's going to be little opportunities that, oh, little spike here, little opportunity. It's all a general decline. Um, but as you become more resilient on your land and more resilient in your in your person, in your, your spiritual context, those little blips are going to matter less and less the more resilient you get. So as you move from that state of dependency to that state of sovereignty, what happens externally in the broad economic model of the new world order is going to matter less and less to us. But we're still in that point where, hey, I'm still using Starlink to talk to you guys. We're still using infrastructure of the system, but can we get to a point where we're less dependent on it? I think that's that's really the fundamental question. Yeah, this is a great way to round out the discussion because we're getting into those intangibles unless you've lived in nature and, and realize these are actually tangibles. You, uh, on a piece of land, if you're there long enough, you imprint and there's a real resonance that becomes one with the land. And when you're in that kind of sink, things just work out. That's when the magic happens. That's when things grow better. That's where uh, support shows up at the nick of time to help you do whatever you need. That's when you find, you know, new little patches to wildcraft, uh, you know, across the river or whatever. And, you know, things uh, that magic is is very, very real. And of course, that also gets into understanding old alchemical principles, which is you know, what I consider real science, where you deliberately uh, grow things uh, in in conjunction with larger universal patterns. And, you know, you have a background that's fantastic in music. Uh, music, in fact, is one of the four sacred sciences or one of the four pillars of classical logic, as it's known. And, of course, music has to do with the timing of the universe. And that universal timing, if you are in sync with it, then you, you know, whether or not you uh, understand how to work with astrological influences or not, you just innately know when to grow things, when to harvest things, when to make things into uh, medicine and so forth. And those are the, the, the greatest benefits, I think, of getting out of a real dependency situation just to have that experience because it's a real self-discovery process at the same time and it just the rewards are are uh incalculable they're just it's it's a wonderful experience can i tag one thing on that i also i think you yeah. engage more with the elementals because when you're in the city in the suburbia you're completely out of tap with that element of nature which is you know, obviously the great alchemists understood this. So when we are concerned with uh, the machinations of the technological uh, systems creating fire and flood, well, we can combat that through our own spiritual powers. I truly believe that. And that's the one thing I think we fear the most here still, and it's palpable fires. We were literally dealing with that in an insane way this summer. And I'm spending more of my um, spiritual uh, energetics while I'm on the land, getting in touch with that elemental specifically 
so that when the fire beast tries to come again, controlled by them, well, it's not a beast, it's just an elemental, we will have an interface with it like they don't understand because they can't tap into that power because they don't, they are completely separated from it. So I know that sounds kind of woo-woo and out there, but that is the powers you get when you're on the land, when you're tapping into the water, right? And understanding all this. We had a doubt, we had an amazing person on AlphaCast last week, uh, Raymond Grace, who literally heals water uh, through his, his internal power uh, on people's land. That's real stuff, right? Uh, yeah. and, and so um, I just wanted to, to, to bring that forth because it's just really, we are the ones that have the power uh, and so if you, if anything today, you guys listen to this is to be motivated to get out of the city or the suburbs or wherever you're at to find land is understanding it's fun. It's, in, it's empowering and it's going to really make your life so much more interesting and, uh, uh creatively inclined. And there's no one that's smarter than I know than your, than like the farmer homesteader in terms of classical philosophy and reading and doing all that. Cause you end up having a lot more time on your hands to do that than being in the nine to five kind of rat the race. Grind. Yeah. The rat race. Exactly. And that's the thing that, yeah, just getting into nature is um, <clears throat> really changes your, your whole perspective and things kind of present to you. I, I, I can't, tell you how many times i've just had so many moments of serendipity where everything just lined up and not to say that those experiences can't be had by anyone anywhere they certainly can but there's something so uh mystical about being in that in that that arena or that that area of of nature and just being surrounded by that abundance and you know one thing on music i will say too is you know kind of make it even a bit more macro and, and esoteric, but you know, I I've been a, I'm a total jazz head. Like I've just super into um, jazz and, and even modern jazz. Um, there's something for me in, in my mind that brings me to a state of a more mosaical understanding of how things are when I can listen to music and listen to something that's fairly complex because I I, I kind of geek out on jazz. Like I'm not into you know Peter Bratzman where it's just blah, just crazy noise, but I do like interesting chord progressions. And there's something that's so for my brain, and I, I try to imbue this with my kids too, and and try to bring them up around interesting music is that it's kind of like this old idea of you are what you eat, and so your brain responds to things that are more complex and it makes you, it, it feeds your brain. So, you know, and there, there's, there's even been studies on this that are, you can point, and it's, it's even common sense. I mean, just think about this garbage hip hop pop music that people listen to today that all sounds the same. It literally makes you stupid. And, 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 and so does everything that the new world order puts out in the form of entertainment or propaganda makes you stupid. Because if you listen to music today, everything's so processed, so compressed, so auto-tuned, there's very little in there that's natural. But then you listen to jazz recordings, whether they're new or old, listen to you know upright bass acoustic instruments. And I find acoustic instruments are just so much more uh, acoustically interesting and dynamic that you listen to that kind of music, you listen to those chord progressions. It isn't just, oh, this is a happy song. Oh, this is a sad song. You get into dominant chord progressions that are actually interesting and the harmony 
is complex, but life is complex. Nature is complex. God is complex. It can also be simple in this sort of paradoxical way, and you can find that unity within yourself. But, you know, you listen to some of these, these recordings, and they make you smart because they show you that life isn't just so cut and dry, right? It, like a, a, a one, four, five chord progression is just simple, and most pop songs are based around that. But then you listen to some some jazz recordings where things are, wow, what is that? You know, sometimes people, uh, upon first listen, when I when I play them some of the music that I listen to, they go, whoa, I'm not quite ready for this. But then, but then they kind of warm up to it. And I think these sort of universal understandings exist in everything that we do as humans. And the more you surround yourself with interesting, complex things that aren't just so cut and dry, because I think the New World Order would like it to be that everything is black and white. And, and, and every decision is either here or there. And that's where this whole idea of controlled opposition exists is that, you know, option A and B, Pepsi and Coke both get you to, uh, you know, high fructose corn syrup, <laughs> which kills you. But it's that, it's that, it's that false dichotomy. But in reality, things are actually more infinitely complex. And I find what I love about music is when I surrender myself to that, and I just go, this is it. This is nature. This is, this is, and, and explore that place, man, it, it makes my mind explode. And so I, I you know, I'm, I'm a big music fan and I kind of, it all kind of comes back to me in that philosophical way. And of course, it's also been shown for a long time that good music makes plants grow better. Totally. Classical music and it, I can feel it. I mean, I, 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 and, and there's certain dissonant frequencies in music that don't rub people the right way in, in, in most cases, you know, remember in the, uh, in the romantic period where if you played a tritone in, and they called it the devil's interval, right? If you played a tritone, the penalty was death <laughs> in some, in some cultures. Now I'm not opposed to that because there are interesting frequencies that can be explored, but it's all about the greater context, where they are in passing. And that's what I love about bebop jazz is that in bebop jazz, when, when they started to explore outside of the, of the diatonic scale and get into going what they call outside in music, is it's an interesting exploration in the right time and place. But sometimes in a lot of modern jazz, just wank on that stuff and it's just dissonant and really annoying. And anybody who's gone to school for music, if you've gone to say Juilliard or or Berkeley or any of those types of things, you, you, or the schools, you're going to interact with this whole new era of classical, which is the 12 tone row, which is completely devilish music. And, and, and it's the same thing when you look at art and you think about like the Dada movement that came out of New York city with, you know, Yoko Ono and all these avant-garde artists like Jackson Pollock and all that is all new world order propaganda. It was like well, getting you, getting you so to bad. get into ugliness and dissonance. And I saw it a lot in Montreal when I lived there because I'd go to these art shows and it, noise music was really popular back then. This is like early, what was it mid two thousands? Like, like garbage. And all these hipsters standing around with their arms crossed, shushing you if you're making fun of it. And uh, it, there's it, a it's reason why this, Plato, the great philosopher, the goat, uh, was actually proposing that governance be used to restrict that sort of music in society because it was so detrimental to society to have because <laughs> because he of course came from the pythagorean concept of music being yes. tied to the divine and forms right 
Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, just look at where we are today. Look, look at what pop music is cranking out. It's like it, it's it's never been more blatantly satanic. It's never been more blatantly obvious what they're trying to show you. It's to go against God. It's to go against cre the creation and the natural inclination that we understand those harmonious frequencies that when you hear them, you go, oh, there's just something in your body that resonates truth. And, and music is so powerful in that way. And I, I think it's so important for parents to actually play and listen to good music around their kids oh, and, and, and exclude all top 40. Of course, some exceptions, because there's still some good artists out there, you know, and some of them still make it to the tops of the charts every now and then. But for the most part, it's just a turn and burn garbage to just get you into this pit of despair. It's terrible. Yeah, it's uh, it's it really cool that um, a lot of parents in our community and like in a platform that we just launched, we have a whole, you know, we're devoting section to good music and stuff. But parents are understanding, as Bear was talking about, the quadrivium and the trivium and getting back to classical education and the importance of, you know, music and being part of that as the language of the soul. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I didn't know so much that you were that deep into music, Curtis. Uh, we got to have you at, out at music and sky, man. Uh, you would really dig it. Uh, we're looking. Oh, to dude, I, I, I'm a total jammer, dude. I can, I could sit around and smoke doobies all night and just, just jam and just, <laughs> and just go anywhere. I, I, I can play most instruments so I can, you know, I, I play upright. I, I play guitar. I, I can, I can make it happen on the keys. I can, I can play drum kit pretty well. I can. Got to get I can you play uh, most jamming out with Marty Leeds. And uh, I don't know if you know who Marty is. Uh, he's phenomenal. And a lot of the the speakers and uh, people that come out are, are all, it's amazing. They're all talented musicians. Really? Uh, well, I, you know? I, 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 I've been so out of the game for so long that I don't know how talented I am anymore. But, but, I, but I've never lost my ability to sit in. You know, I can yeah. pretty much sit in on most instruments. I'm not a virtuoso. I used to be a really good guitar player. I used to be able to just wow people. I've been so out of practice for a long time. But the cool thing about music is that your ear never goes away. You know, I can listen to, I'm, I'm really into a band called Snarky Puppy. And I can listen to those guys and I can I can see the music with my eyes. Um, not in the sense that I'm like a Beethoven who can hear a 12-part harmony and and then just write up the chart, but I can I can see it in a lot of ways because I understand the chord progressions and I have a fairly fairly uh, educated understanding of harmony and chord progressions and and rhythm. But I can I, it's been it's been really neat because I I was so into music from the time I was twelve years old till the time I was about twenty eight. It was pretty much my entire life. I was started playing in punk rock hardcore bands. Then I got into, um, you know, indie rock and post rock and stuff like that. Then I got really into jazz. And then I started doing gigs and sitting in and, and, and playing jazz improv shows and stuff like that. But then I stopped that when I started my farming career. I basically put music on the shelf for, you know, it's been 15 years, really. And but my ear has never gone away. I know what sounds good. I can I can get I can figure out chord progressions and I get it. And so it's kind of neat because your body can kind of slow down, your technique can slow down, but the ear never goes away. At least that's been my experience. I will just say this: the one thing that has been always really cool about cities and and the urban life is, of course, the culture around the arts. And I will say, people often poo poo. Oh, you're moving out to rural. You're going to lose all that that culture, but um, that not, no, that's man. not true. 
That's not, not at all. Because a lot of the, 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 like when you, like I was saying, you have a lot more time, especially in the winter to learn instruments and, and your most yep. neighbors that we have are amazing musicians and we'll do jam sessions in friends uh, property in the barn in the garage. So, uh, and that's why we started music in sky so we can have our own festival and there's, those are popping up everywhere as well. So uh, yeah, I want to do some true. of that up here too. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, what's funny though, too, about the cities. Cause I mean, you know, I was a Montreal guy. I was there for eight years and um, you know, hipster living in the city playing jazz knew all the best jazz players and, and whatnot rub shoulders with a lot of famous people that you, you would know of in the Montreal music scene. And, um, when I check in with my friends that are still living in that city, they're just, it's just not there anymore. Like after COVID it's done. Okay. Like there's no, the whole cultural phenomenon. Cause Montreal used to be a pretty exciting city. Have you guys ever been there, but it's, oh, it's, fun it's place. done. Like it's, it's, it it's, it, it, and it was great. There was a heyday. I mean, when I was there, it was absolutely the cultural hub of, of, of North America. Montreal was the most unique city. It still is unique, but the best jazz musicians came to the Montreal Jazz Fest. The best, the, just the best music in general was there. And it was such an exciting place to be. And that changed too, even, even before COVID, it was just getting worse and worse because the woke stuff had permeated the culture there so much that I talked to some of my old jazz buddies. They can't even have conversations at parties anymore with people without getting canceled. So everybody's afraid to say what they think. And so, whereas when I was there in the, uh, in the early two thousands, Montreal was a place you could say whatever you wanted and, and nobody cared. I used to get in arguments with feminists, though I didn't have a lot of the opinions that I have now as strong as I did, but I'd get in these debates. And at the end of the day, nobody really gave a shit. But just before COVID, it got so woke that it was almost impossible to just be who you are and explore new ideas and think about things. And then after COVID, the, 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 the sort of the doubling down on these insane liberal ideas have just decimated it and it's just no longer what it was and i don't even know if any of these cultural hubs exist anymore because i remember i used to go down to la you know over 10 years ago and still be like yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool down here i wouldn't want to live here but you know there's some pretty cool stuff going on i feel like there's freedom of thought even san francisco you know my in my early career I spent so much time in the Bay Area teaching urban farming workshops, and even then it was still somewhat open. This is all, you know, 10 years ago or more now. But now, forget about it. Where, where do you go? I mean, I guess everybody's moving to places like Austin, but then those have become kind of overrun with the liberal ideology too. So I think the country and the towns, the small towns, are experiencing a renaissance, and I think we're going to continue to see that. And I'm, I'm really optimistic. I mean, I, I, I get to know some people in my community here and find out that some of these great musicians out here that used to live in the city, but they can't handle it anymore. So they come out here. One thing I can say uh, since I've been in the same body for a few years now is the pendulum always swings the other way. And I think we're starting to see it get nudged in the opposite direction. So uh, wokeness was, uh, you know, an experiment in futility it's failed uh it's been largely rejected yeah. and um yeah so things like that take care of themselves but uh, but i agree last time i was in montreal i had some medical um 
uh, trainings that we did up there in the eighties. And yeah, it was a wonderful place, you know, very international and bilingual and everything. So I always enjoyed yeah. that about, uh, you know, old Canada, Toronto used to be kind of a fun place as well, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's all not gonna, been a fun it, place for longer than Montreal though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My family, but, now, a lot of my is, family are from Toronto. It's been a great discussion. So any final thoughts um, that we haven't already brought up? And then also, we want to make sure that everybody has all your contacts, uh, you know, links to find all your great work. Totally. Hey, well, you know, I love talking to you guys. Uh, whenever we do this, uh, I feel <laughs> like we could just go all day. And I, and, and I really hope that sometime we can all hang out and actually in, in person and just and uh that, that would be really nice um yeah right now at freedomfarmers.com best place i'm on twitter i'm pretty active on there now really enjoying it hoping that it it continues to be the gravy train that it seems to be right now but at off grid stone people can follow me there i'm posting all the time uh doing spaces really enjoying the twitter spaces platform but i just did one with ben falk last night talking about firewood on the resilient homestead I'll also be backing those spaces up on Rumble too. So if some people aren't Twitter, they can they can listen to the spaces on uh, Rumble. That's happening. Uh, I'm still on YouTube, though. Who knows for how much longer? And uh, I am consulting again actively. Uh, if people want to reach out to me and help me, uh, and I can help you on your land in many different capacities and and ways, um, just go to my original website, theurbanfarmer.co. There's a contact page in there. You can just reach out to me there. Um, I am doing consulting a couple times a week these days. So I'm kind of more into that. And I hope to be actually just doing more stuff in person coming up, you know, took a bit of a hiatus during COVID as many of us did. Um, but I am doing more public speaking events. Uh, hope to be down in the U.S. at least a couple times in 2024. And I'm also planning some live events up here on my homestead. I've got about six planned right now. There'll be more information about that coming soon. And looking to organize a conference up in uh, central BC. And there'll be more inf uh, information about that. It's going to be solutions in liberty, basically. That's the kind of theme. Uh, we've got holistic health. We've got law. We've got, um, of course, regenerative agriculture as, as, as a component. But kind of looking at those solutions for people. And really just trying to help people more on the private as best as I can. You know, I've I've been online a long time. I'll continue to be. But who knows? There might be a time coming up soon that unless we take the digital ID, you know, we won't be having these conversations on Zoom. So let's pray that that doesn't happen right away. Nah, um, but yeah, ain't gonna so happen. having them on uh, Cordal. But yeah, go ahead, Bear. I hope yeah, so. I hope you're you right go. there. And uh, Curtis, by the way, from my front doorstep, I can be at the Canadian border in about 10 hours. So we're going to be doing more regular workshops here on the farm this coming season. I'd love to see you down here sometime, maybe even do a workshop together. Hey, totally open to it. And, and the door is always wide open for you guys to come up here. I mean, we're not far from the U.S. border either. So absolutely. I mean, it's it's lovely up here in the summer. It's just paradise. So. Uh, and we've got a pretty good season. It, all of our seasons are really beautiful, actually, whether it's winter, spring, or fall, or summer. They're all really nice. So uh, invitation goes for you guys as well. Yeah, you actually nice. have surf up there, and you have amazing rivers full of awesome steelhead. So We got it all, man. Yeah, yeah. we're in the abundance of nature up here. There's very few people, and we can explore and do all kinds of stuff freely. It, it's, it's, it's lovely. 
Awesome. Man. And Bigfoot is alive and well All right, guys. as well. Bigfoot. I hear that. I hear that. I'm still <laughs> waiting to meet him, but uh, we'll see. Me too. <laughs> hey, Curtis, thanks. thanks so much for being with us. This was amazing. Have a good one. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. You too. Hey, everybody. Have a great day. Remember to get outside, get your feet in the dirt, go plant something, go grow something, go for a hike, show Mother Nature some love. She'll show it right back to you next week. We'll see you same bat time, same bat channel. Bear and I on a special Christmas special. We'll be coming to you live from uh, Rincon Beach. Love you guys. Have a good one. Peace.